Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. In 1946, Anna and Boris had been married for three days when Boris joined the army and was taken away into war during World War II. After Boris left for war, Anna and her parents, her whole family, were actually exiled from Serbia. Anna Boris actually searched for one another after the war ended and spent years looking for one another, trying to find their husband, trying to find their wife. And as the years passed, both Anna and Boris married other people. Yet, they never forgot their one first love. When each of their spouses had passed away and after 60 years, they both happened to visit their hometown in Serbia at the same time. When Boris saw Anna from a distance, after 60 years, he ran, to, he ran up to her and said, My darling, I've been waiting so long for you, my wife, my life. It's a true story about love waiting, about waiting for love. We are all in one form or fashion waiting for love. And in the middle of Advent, in the middle of this time of anticipation, not being able to wait for, excited for what's coming on Christmas Day, a time of waiting, we find ourselves looking at hope, peace, joy, and today waiting for love. That's a pretty interesting thought and a pretty interesting title is a world in waiting, but more importantly, that we're waiting for love and all the different things that we can read into that statement and all the different ways that we can read into that statement. How do we define love is the first question. How do we define it? But then the better question is how does God define love and what's the difference between those two definitions? In waiting for love, how well do we actually wait You cannot prove love's existence. You cannot touch it. You cannot taste it. You cannot grab a hold of it. But for anyone who's experienced it, it's impossible to say it does not exist. And so therefore, we wait for it. We long for it because it is the most powerful force ever known. And so we wait. For some of us, the waiting is waiting for a romantic love, that, su- that special someone that we're looking for, we may be longing for, or maybe it's just to simply be loved, to be accepted, to be wanted, to be desired for exactly who we are and the gifts that we have to bring. Maybe it's the love from a parent that was absent for a child as they grew up. Or maybe it's the love of a child that seems to have walked away from a family. And parents who desire that back. Or maybe, especially this time of the year, maybe it's the painful ache of a loved one that has passed away before you. There's so many definitions of love, and our Western American culture struggles in many, in many ways with the idea of love, with even the word love. We use the same word saying, I love my iPhone, as the same word I use in saying, I love my children. We have one word for so many meanings, for so many definitions. We often unhealthily measure how much we love something based upon how much we get from it. 
how much will I love a person or how much I love an object is oftentimes defined by how much I get from it, how much I'm going to benefit if I give and extend that love. And once that benefit disappears, what happens? Does our love begin to wane? Does our love begin to fade? Does it begin to outright disappear? If I'm no longer getting the love that I think I should be getting, does my love no longer get extended? Does my love begin to no longer be felt? But even in the middle of all those things that we struggle with, we still long for it. We find ourselves looking for it, hoping for love, waiting for love. And as a result, I want to show you a quick video of how oftentimes uh, we portray this waiting for love, this expectation of receiving it and waiting for it. And then when we get it, what oftentimes happens when it doesn't meet our expectations. Let's watch the video. I love when clips are funny, not just because they try to make them funny, but because they're actually true (laughs) and funny at the same time. The love that we are often seeking is one that we think is going to fill a need in us, that we think is going to fill a hole in us, that we were, and we are, and we have been, we are created to be loved extravagantly. But we've also been created to give, to pour out love extravagantly. You see, in our self-centered, our me-oriented culture that we're in, we too often place the importance and the emphasis on the receiving of love 
And the pouring out of love often takes a back seat. It becomes second to the benefit I get by receiving love. In other words, we look for love, we desire and seek and wait for love on our own terms, much like the video. Why do we do that? Why do we seek love on our own terms versus God's terms? And there's actually an answer Scripture gives us very early on in the story of humanity and his relationship with God that is told to us. We may not love the answer because it's like a mirror reflecting back at us, but it's a word called shame. If I were to ask what is the opposite of love in this room, most of us, if not all of us, would say the opposite of love is hate. But that word does not do justice to the amount and the magnitude of what God's love overcomes. For a world in waiting, the opposite of love is not hate, it is shame. That shame that we hold on to, the shame that we cover ourselves in by choice, that we take in upon ourselves, leads to fear. And it's the fear that then leads to hate. As a wise prophet once said, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. To understand the love of God, we have to understand the idea of shame that we have willingly taken on ourselves. So let's take a look at Genesis 2. We're going to start in verse 25. We're going to jump around a little bit between 2 and 3. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Now, yes, naked means no clothes. But man, if that's all we hear, we're missing the bigger picture. They were naked. They were vulnerable. They were transparent. They were open. They had nothing to hide from God or from each other. Can we say that today? Love at that point was a given. It didn't have to be defined. It simply was. And then God tells Adam... You can eat of any, any tree in this garden, of any tree, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or as I like to call it, the tree of the knowledge of love and shame. He tells them that. Choose me. God says, choose me. Perfect love. Choose me or choose yourself. Choose your benefit. And now love is beginning to be defined. Love is coming into a little bit of an understanding. Will you make love of pouring it out? Will you make love about giving it to me? Will you pour it out for God for his benefit? Or will you take it and expect it and demand it for your benefit? And Adam and Eve, in a moment of self-love, of me-oriented life, chose to eat the fruit of the tree of love and shame. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They were vulnerable. The text never directly says it, but I am confident, I am fully confident that if, that if we were to want to, we could take that word naked and put the word shame directly in there. That they realized that they felt shame. Continuing with verse 7, they, so they sewed fig leaves 
together and made coverings for themselves. They decided they were going to do something to cover the shame. We are going to work for it. We're going to do something to cover it up so that others can't see it. God can't see it. We're going to begin to hide this. So they made fig leaves to cover themselves. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Don't you love that, that God kind of plays along with us? Where are you? He, meaning Adam, answered, I heard you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Because I felt shame, so I hid. What happened in this moment is something that has transpired from that point going forward. Even to today, shame entered the picture. Not guilt, but shame entered the picture. And we've been hiding our own shame, and we've been hiding from God from that point until now, and we've begun to look, or have been from that point, looking for love in all the wrong places. So that's the bad news. That's the bad news. But I want to tell you the good news. I want to tell you the gospel. I want to tell you the gospel truth that's in this. And when I first start reading it, you're not going to believe that it's the good news, but it really is the good news that I think somehow we've missed in translation. Genesis 3, 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We read that and we're like, okay, he put clothes on them. No, this is the beginning, the first act of grace with God, that he did not leave us in our shame, that he, as he's going to send us out into the world, covers us up, gives us some honor, displays to us some love, begins to pour it out so we're not just walking in our shame, but begins to give us honor and love as we enter into the world. Genesis 3:22 and the Lord God said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil love and shame he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken after he drove the man out he placed on the east side of the garden uh, the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, too often we read that story and it doesn't sound like good news, but it is because we try to read it with a negative punishment. Adam and Eve were banished. Adam and Eve were exiled. As if God could not be around their shame. As if God chose to no longer be in their presence and they could no longer be in his because we had covered ourselves in shame. But that's not what that story is saying. It is the beginning of grace knowing that they were covered in shame and knowing that they could eat from the tree of life and live forever with guilt, not just guilt, but shame that we cover ourselves with. To protect mankind from living in that, he removed the ability to live forever by eating of the tree of life. This was not punishment, it was protection. The moment they covered themselves with shame, God did not remove himself from us. God began to pursue us. God pursued me. God pursues you. Not back then. He did for them, but now he's pursuing you, whether you're here or at home, no matter how many places you may be to see this message, hear this. God is pursuing you. And he always has been. 
to remove the shame that we ourselves placed in us by choice. We live under some misconception that God cannot be in the presence of sin, that he cannot be in the presence of our shame. But the rest of the Old Testament says quite the opposite. The picture that is painted throughout Scripture is quite the opposite. God pursues us like a lover, like a parent looking for a child, like a best friend whose other friend is in pain and is hurting, hoping we will let him take the shame from us, that once again we will be naked and open and honest and vulnerable before him. But not just him, that will be that way towards each other. God, Father... Son, Holy Spirit, is drawn to sin and shame like a doctor to a patient to heal us, to make us whole, not to shun and punish, but to draw us into that relationship, the only relationship that matters. What love are we waiting for? Jesus being born into this world to live and die for our selfishness is the ultimate act that replaces love It replaces shame with love. I'm going to give you a picture of this. Mark 2, starting in verse 15. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, that's Matthew from uh, the book of Matthew, one of the apostles. At Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Many what? Many sinners, tax collectors. People that they would have called shameful. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, those who thought that they were righteous, who weren't covering themselves in shame, when they saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he in such close proximity to these people? Does he not know who they are? Does he not know the shame that they're carrying with them? Does he he not realize that if he's too close to them, people will associate him with them? Does he not realize that it's contagious? He might get it. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And this Jesus born into this world was mocked, beaten, shamed, even though he never took it. But he took our shame as his own and replaced it with honor and replaced it with Love as his children. God, the creator of the whole universe, who spun every star into existence, spun every planet into existence, created us from scratch, every molecule of our body, every hair in our head, knew our name before our parents even thought of it, who holds all things together, decided to display his awesome, awe-inspiring power by loving us with no benefit to himself but a desire to be loved in return, but did it without having to have that. John, 1 John 4, 9, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And he did this without any guarantee of benefit. He poured out love extravagantly with no requirement of return. He did not hide from our shame. He did not run from our shame. As a matter of fact, he does the opposite and runs to us as a father to a lost child. As Boris did to Anna in the story at the very beginning from World War II. The love of God is for our benefit, not his. 
God is waiting and running to us saying, my darling, I've been waiting so long for you, my wife, my bride, my life. God is waiting for us. You see, the waiting for love is not about us waiting on God, waiting on love, because God is love. The waiting for love is God waiting on us. And that's not a one-time event. One-time event is a daily choice to reject the shame that we place upon ourselves and embrace the love that he pursues us with. God knows our mistakes. He knows our every imperfection. Nothing is hidden from him. And actually, precisely because he knows all of these things upon us that we've placed upon us, he executed the ultimate act of love. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our king and to save us from our shame, our mistakes, our imperfections. Not to punish, but to save like a doctor to a patient, to provide healing, to make someone whole. So the truth is that in waiting for love, God is waiting for us. Will we, will you accept the invitation? Pray with me. Yahweh, my Father, our Father, we come before you, pursued, wanted, loved with the greatest gift we could ever have received. Father, remind us that Jesus coming into this world isn't just about our benefit. It's what you've given to us, but it's about us making the choice to have a relationship with you. That you have restored all things to you. If we would just accept that invitation. But then the coolest part, God, is that you invite us to pour it out extravagantly to those around us. Help us to see that all times of the year, but especially right now. It's not about what we get, but what we've been given and how we are to provide that to everyone around us extravagantly without an expectation of benefit for us to display your love because you loved us and pursued us first. We praise you for Holy Spirit that acts within us we praise you that we don't have to live in shame and that you don't come to punish, you come to save. Thank you for Jesus who provided that. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the manger. It's in Jesus' amazing holy name I pray. Amen.